Welcome to Truly Creepy with Brittany and Sarah. I love your sweater. It's really cute. It looks nice and Thanks. fluffy and comfy. <laughs> so comfy. Hello, guys. Hello, hello. Welcome. <laughs> uh, my sinuses are like, ugh, because the weather keeps changing and my earbuds do not want to stay in my ears. <laughs> I have very small ears and these earbuds, as much as I love them, if I wear them for too long, they like won't stay in. Yes. And they so beep every time guys... they pop out of my ear. <laughs> they beep. So I have to put them back in. So if you've ever seen a video of us where we're recording it and I'm adjusting my earbuds, it's because they beep and it drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny to watch. She's just talking and then all of a sudden she's just like sticking her fingers in her ears to try to get them to stay in. Well, and half the time you can't even see them, but my hair is up today so you can see them. But... <laughs> All I want for Christmas is a pair of over-the-ear headphones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, Dad. I want all that other stuff that I told you about, too. Um, <laughs> oh, I already know exactly what I'm going to get you. I just don't know if it's going to get here in time for Christmas or not. Uh, I kid. My dad I'm... doesn't listen to this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my dad doesn't know what a podcast is. <laughs> I tried explaining oh, it. Boy. And then I just said that me and Sarah talk to each other and record it. <laughs> and he was like, okay. good." Yeah, all right, cool, whatever. Not the well, weirdest thing he's of, ever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> true, true. We have had some crazy stories together where he's just done, like, that typical dad sigh, like, <sighs> And our dads are so much alike, it's so funny. It really is. Really and they is. would be great friends if either of them wanted to have friends. <laughs> We've said that so many times. Uh, yes, that is so true. Oh, I love it. All right, well let's let's get into it. What do you got? What do you got from me oh, today? Right. I've got a good old fashioned Christmas mystery. Ooh. There might be I'm some moita. But I'll leave that up to you and the listeners to decide. Ooh. So we are going all the way back to 1945. Oh, all the times way back. Were, times were simpler. World War II was happening. And before we uh, find ourselves at Christmas Eve in 1945, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our patriarch. Uh, George Sauter immigrated to the United States in 1908 from Sardinia, Italy. When he was just 13 years old, he was able to find work on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies for other workers. After a few years, he moved to, moved to Smithers, West Virginia, where he worked as a driver and then launched his own trucking business where he hauled dirt, freight, and coal for those of you who don't know, West Virginia is a very big coal area, and that is pretty much what everyone there has done for centuries. <laughs> so wait, okay, so he came over and he got his first job when he was 13, and it was how many years before he started doing this? Um, It was about, it didn't really have a timeline. It just said after a few years he moved to West Virginia. So I'm going to say it was probably like, 10-ish years, eight years, something like that. So he's probably like early 20s. But that's still really ambitious for that young. I mean, I guess in the 40s, things were just different then. I mean, very true. Very I mean, true. at that point, my grandpa had lied about how old he was so that he could join the military and fight in World War II. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, he joined the Navy when he was like 16 and he lied and said that he was older and then when he was 18, he, like, enlisted as an 18-year-old in the Army. Wow. Yeah, yeah. it was just different back then. I it mean, was just, it was different. That's what you did. You worked. You started young. Mm -hmm. You made your own money. You worked. That was just what was expected of you. 
Yeah, it was a different time. And my grandpa's the oldest of eight kids, so. Yeah, also. You know, they had a farm. It's not like they were making a lot of money. So it's just what you did. You were expected to pull your own weight. And my, how the tables have turned. (laughs) Not in a good way. Um, Not in a good way. (laughs) I mean, good that 13-year-olds aren't forced to go out and be adults. But anyway. That's a whole other topic for a whole other episode. That is a whole other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So he was hauling dirt, freight, and coal. And I think that he mainly specified in, like, coal because everything else I read referred to him having a coal business. But... He would obviously, you know, call whatever was going to make him money. And while he was in West Virginia, he met Ginny Cipriani, an Italian immigrant who uh, came to the United States when she was three years old with her family. They were soon married and moved to Fayetteville, West Virginia. And between 1923 and 1943, they had 10 children. Oh, Ten no. And they all were like, they all made it through infancy. Wow. So generally people would have like 12 to 14 kids, but only like a small portion of them would actually make it to adulthood. That's why they had so many. Yeah. That's why. And that's, and they needed help like around the house and everything. And that's why they generally had so many kids. And so um, like my grandpa, I think. Only seven of them made it past infancy. I know his, like, youngest brother died as a baby. So, you know, it was really common to have a ton of kids just because life expectancy wasn't that great. Especially in somewhere in, like, West Virginia where you're in a a very rural area. It's cold. Conditions are not great. Um, Medical care was not the way it is now. Exactly. Infant care was not the way. Yeah, these were, there was no prenatal care really. Um, And so, you know, you had lots of kids because that's just, you wanted a chance to have several of them make it to adulthood. So they had 10 children in a 20 year time span, which my God, poor Jenny. (laughs) Oh, I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine being pregnant. For that long. Like, I mean, yeah, obviously there's breaks well, in between, but at year, that point, it's like 10, 10 kids. And so at that point, I mean, pretty much all of your kids, like you're pregnant for that whole time. If you're having 10 babies. Yeah. And those are just I mean, the ones she had. That's not to say that she didn't like miscarry or have other ones that didn't make it or, you yeah. know, any number of things. So. Oh, my God. I could not. I could not. It's about 10 too many for me, but. (laughs) And it is so miserable sometimes being pregnant. Like, my middle child is one of the only ones that I didn't really have issues with when I was pregnant with her. But then delivering her was a whole other story. (laughs) But, I mean, with the other two, like, it was fun for like a month. <laughs> and then I was well, like, I am over your this. One, you were in the hospital for like a month or something. So like, yeah. <laughs> and then she ended up coming almost a month early too. It yeah. was, it was rough, man. So I can't, I can't imagine having those types of issues. Like I had, like I had preeclampsia and I had gestational like hypertension and I had all these issues. So I can't even imagine being in the forties and 50s and having those issues and not having the medical advances that we have today I probably wouldn't have made it and so the fact that she was able to have 10 children is a miracle for back then that is just oh my gosh I can't wrap my head around that yeah it's insane and so that brings us to where our story starts and on a Christmas Eve, 1945, the Sauter family, parents George and Jenny, and nine of their ten children, uh, their oldest son was in the Army away fighting in World War II at the time, uh, went to bed like any other night, excited for Christmas morning. Uh, They were a middle-class family, so Christmas for them probably was a little nicer than it would have been for most families during this time frame, because during World War II, there was a lot of 
you know, like most men weren't around because they were off fighting in the war. There wasn't a lot of money. Women were going into the workforce because they had to, yeah, you know, for like the first time. And so for a lot of people, Christmas in this time period would have been not as nice as it would usually have been. And so for them, though, they were middle class. Their dad was at home. You know, they were doing pretty well. And so they were all excited for the next morning. And unfortunately, the events of that night would change their lives forever and leave them wondering what happened. And so on that night, George and Jenny said goodnight to their nine children that were home and they all went to bed. Their youngest two-year-old was in bed with them and then upstairs in two rooms um the oldest of the so sylvia was the youngest and she was in bed with her parents and then the four oldest kids that were at home were in one room and then the five other kids were in another room and they aged from like 14 to down to five wow yeah and so um they all went to bed and you know just any other night uh but jenny was woken up at about 12 30 by a phone call where she could barely understand the person on the other end there was clinking glasses and chatter in the background and she wasn't really sure what was going on was it a wrong number was it someone like trying to prank them um but she went back to bed shortly after that and but was awoken again not long later by a noise on the roof uh she waited didn't hear anything else and so she was like oh well that was weird but like didn't hear anything else santa, and so she, santa was she that you exactly what i almost <laughs> typed into my notes <laughs> it's christmas eve there's a noise on the roof was it the pitter patter of reindeer um so she didn't think anything of it when she didn't hear anything else and she slipped back into sleep but around 1.30, George and Jenny were woken by their house, be- house being engulfed in flames. Oh. Yes. So George and Jenny and their youngest, Sylvia, who was in bed with them, and their oldest children, um, 23-year-old John, 16-year-old George, 17-year-old Marion, all were able to get safely outside. So George and Jenny, their room... I think it was downstairs from everything that I could put together. And then the room that the older kids were sleeping in was closest to the stairs. So they were able to just like get down the stairs and get outside. But when George noticed that the other five children hadn't come outside, he tried to go back in and get them. But when he made it into the hallway, their room was on the opposite end of the hall. And there was too much fire for him to go through. The hallway was engulfed. So he came back outside and he was like, I'll just use a ladder. You know, they keep a ladder next to the house. He was like, I'll just use that. I'll put it in their window. I'll get them out. Well, he goes around the house and the ladder's not there. So he's like, okay, well, I'm a smart man. Let me figure this out. So he's like, okay, well, we have two coal trucks on the property. I'll just go get one of them. I'll move it over here. I'll stand on top of it. I'll be able to reach them. You know, I'll do that. So he goes to try and turn the trucks on and neither of them will start. He just used them hours ago. He was like, what is wrong with these trucks? They should be working just fine. So he's like, okay, well, what do I do now? So he scales a wall and tries to get into the attic, but he cuts his arm pretty badly in the process and isn't able to keep climbing. So then he's like, okay, well, we have this rain bucket, you know, we'll, take the water out of the rain bucket. We'll throw it on the house, see if we can put out some of the fire. Maybe then, you know, they'll be able to like get out of the house. Well, it's December in West Virginia and the rain barrel was frozen solid. So they weren't able to get any of the water out of the barrel to throw onto the house to try and put the fire out. Of course. So while they're trying to do all of this, their phone line wasn't working. So they're like, okay, we, now we need to go to a neighbor's house <laughs> to <laughs> call the oh, fire department. Well, in the 40s, you had to call an operator. The operator would connect you to who you needed to talk to. There were no automatic phone lines. Yeah. So they go to the neighbor's house. No one's answering at the fire department because, of course not. 
And so one of the neighbors actually decides to go into town to find the fire chief. He's like, I'll just drive into town. I'll find the fire chief, round up all the firefighters. You know, they'll come. So he goes and does that. Well, then the fire chief has to call a firefighter and they basically initiate a phone tree, which is where one person calls another person and that person calls another person. So because it would take too long for someone to call each individual person, they just did the phone tree and then they had to wait for everyone to get to the station. So the chief is at the station, but he can't drive the fire truck because only certain people have the skills to drive the fire truck. So he had to wait on someone to get there that could drive the fire truck. Although I feel like if you're a chief of a fire department, you should definitely be knowledgeable in the way to drive a fire truck. But anyways, I digress. I'm so glad that we (laughs) have come so far technologically that this is not the process that we have to go through anymore. I'm exhausted just hearing you try to explain it. (laughs) Well, and I can only imagine, like, all the franticness that was happening while, like, they're just standing there watching their house burn and there's absolutely nothing they can do because they've tried everything and nothing has worked. And their kids are inside. And they have five kids that are unaccounted for. And, I mean, it just must be, like, pure agony. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Despite the fact that the fire station was only two and a half miles from the solder home, they didn't arrive on the scene until 8 a.m. So that's nearly seven hours after the fire started. Was there anything even left after that? Basically, at that point, it was just a pile of smoking ash. Oh, my God. I would be so, so pissed. You know, when. Asked why it took so long, the fire chief is like, well, you know, we're short on manpower because of the war, which everyone was. That is not a lie. And, you know, then they have to do the phone tree. And because this was being a firefighter wasn't like a full time job. Then it was mostly volunteer. They didn't staff the fire station. You would have to call and come in whenever there was a fire. They didn't just have you hanging out at the fire station like they do now. And so... You know, it was people are at home asleep. It was Christmas Eve. And so, you know, he said, you know, it just took a long time for us to get the phone tree and everyone to get there. And, you know, I'm just glad we're beyond this era. I mean, I I understand that. But seven hours, like in a, I'm assumably smaller town. Well, and I would imagine that at the same time that George is trying to get back into the house, that someone has already tried to go to the neighbor to call since their phone line wasn't working. Yeah. I would assume that they didn't just, like, wait until he was like, can't get back in. Like, I would assume that they, like, went while he was trying to do all of that. But nothing was really specific on that timeline. But still, that's an excessive amount of time in a town that is not that big. And so the police and fire began an investigation on the remains of the fire and at 10 a.m. told George and Jenny that they had not found any bones in the remains of the fire. Now, remember, they didn't get there until eight. And you're telling me that within two hours, they've already decided that they couldn't find anything, that they did a thorough enough investigation to decide that, one, the scene was safe for them to go into because that is a really big, important factor. Mm-hmm. Two, that they were able to thoroughly look through the ashes of this house and be positive nope. that there was no bodies in there in two hours. There's no way. There's no way. A body burning for presumably seven hours or even like six, five, six, however long before it actually went out. It's going to be really difficult to find remains, but but you they would be can. there. Yeah, they would be there, but 2 hours that just seems a little Yeah. So, they actually held a coroner's jury and they found that the fire was the result of faulty wiring and declared it an accident. We'll come back to this in just a little bit, so put that in your back pocket. So, even though that was the reason that they had come up with George had actually had the wiring inspected and was told that it was all fine and up to standard because some weird things had been happening and he was just double checking for the safety of his family. And this had just, he just had it inspected like within weeks before the fire happened. So like very recent. 
Yes, no. and so because leading up to this fire, several odd things had happened, and he was a little concerned. So they're left to wonder what happened to their kids. If there are no remains in there, well, where are they? And George and Jenny didn't really believe that they died in the fire, but that would mean that they somehow made it out with anyone hearing or seeing where they had gone. So there were several theories about what happened that Christmas Eve, and some strange things had happened leading up to the fire. Several months before the fire, a man came to the house asking if the family needed any hard labor. George decided to take pity on the man and showed him around the property. And the man had pointed at some fuse boxes on the back of the house and told George that it was faulty, or more specifically, he said that it would cause a fire someday. So that happens. And then a couple weeks after that, around October, um, a salesman comes to the house and tried to sell George a family insurance plan. And he was being really pushy, and George just figured that he really needed to make the sale, that he probably, you know, was short on money. He was depending on making that sale. And, you know, he, but George was not interested. He didn't want, you know, life insurance for his family. And so he said he didn't want it. And George thought, like, oh, that's simple enough. Like, that'll be that. But the man told George... And I quote, because I would never say this word of my own volition, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks that you've been making about Mussolini. That's very specific. So I'm going to throw a big, like, red flag on this one. Huge red flag. A a BRF, if you will. (laughs) And this man basically just threatened exactly what ended up happening. And I'm assuming that no one looked into this man. But it was an accident. So they wouldn't even because they just said it was an accident. Oh, my God. So at the time, Mussolini was the dictator in Italy, and George was very outspoken that he was not a fan. He had no problem telling anyone that he wasn't a fan. He wasn't a fan of Mussolini. He wasn't a fan of fascism. But... The Italian immigrant community in Fayetteville felt differently than George, and they all liked him and didn't like that George had these harsh opinions. And this often caused arguments between him and other immigrants, but George never suspected that it would lead to anything, you know, like more than an argument. I mean, they're arguing over something that doesn't really affect them because they immigrated into the United States. And so he never thought anything of it, you know, it was just disagreements. He didn't think anything about you know, you know, we each have our opinion, you know, yada, yada, yada. And despite their disagreements, everyone, you know, said that the Sodders were a very well-respected middle-class family and everyone really liked them. So, you know, they don't like his opinions, but no one really had anything bad to say about them otherwise. Yeah. So those theories about what happened that Christmas Eve Well, George and Jenny didn't believe that their children had died in the fire, and they thought that the police and firemen were conspiring to cover up what had actually happened. Jenny had talked to a friend who worked at a mortuary, and they told her that human bones turn completely to ash when they've been burned at over 18, sorry, when they've been burned at 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit for around two hours. So that's what it would take to to complete ash. Mm -hmm. Well, I did some research because I am me and (laughs) the average house fire at its max temperature would reach about 1500 degrees Fahrenheit. And the hottest portion of that is going to be at like the very top of the house because heat rises. Yeah. So at the very top of the house is where it would reach that 1500. If a house fire reaches that most house fires don't reach that temperature. But that is the temperature that they can reach. So, assumedly, then, there's no way that their bodies could have just completely been ash. So, now, I'm not a fire inspector, and so I don't know, like, the specifics on how it would be. Since this fire burned for seven hours. Now, I'm not saying that it, like, it was probably smoldering after several hours. It probably, I mean, once there's nothing else for the flames to engulf, they kind of die because they don't have anything else to consume. So 
I'm assuming that the whole seven hours that they waited for the fire department were not like huge flames engulfing the whole because at some point the house wouldn't have anything else to be engulfed. But yeah, that is my layman's speculation. I'm not a fire inspector. So if it burns the whole time at 1500 degrees, I suppose it could be possible if the whole time that fire is 1500 degrees, that it could be possible that they would be turned to complete ash, but I don't think that it would. I think that there would still be bone fragments. I think that there would still be other things that lead you to believe that there is a person or people. I mean, there's five children. It's not like it was one two-year-old. Like, yeah, you know, they were five. So, something were five from someone. Yeah, there were there five children. Something. There were all different age range. So there were all different sizes. So, so there, would be something. <laughs> there would be something. And not, you know... To mention, like, what if they try to hide under something? What if they had something mm-hmm. that tried that, you know, that they try to put over them to protect themselves from the fire? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't completely protect them, but it could preserve something of them. Yes. So, I mean, like I said, this isn't something that I'm, like, an expert in. So, if I'm wrong, if you know the answer to it, feel free to tell me. Reach out. Let me know. Because I would love to know. I would love to know if that's, like, even possible because yeah. I doubt that the fire reached that temperature the whole time. Yeah. So, because if it needs to be, you know, almost 1900 degrees for two hours, I would think that it would need to burn at that 1500 for, you know, at least the whole seven hours. Yeah. For, for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but let me know if you know the answer to that mystery. Um, One of the theories, though, was that George Sauter had crossed the Sicilian Mafia. And um, this one was one that was really, like, held on to. Everyone was, like, convinced, like, well, if it wasn't an accident and they didn't die in the fire, then it was the Mafia. And they believed that it was because either he had pissed them off because of his disdain for Mussolini or that they wanted to compete with his coal business. But George and Jenny had no criminal ties, so they weren't really the type of people that would be targets for the mafia. Yeah. And I have a feeling that if the mafia was involved, no one would have made it out of that house alive. Yeah, they wouldn't leave. That's not how they roll, but yeah, they wouldn't leave potential witnesses. But I mean, that's just my opinion. I also think that the mafia suspicion is like the most 40s thing that... (laughs) could ever (laughs) exist yeah but um this was the leading theory though that everyone held on to you know lots of people were convinced that the sicilian mafia was who was involved so by the end of Hmm. 1945 the coroner had issued five death certificates for the missing solder children saying that the cause of death was fire or suffocation those seem like different things to me but whatever A funeral was held for the children on January 2nd, 1946. However, Jenny and George were too grief-stricken to attend. However, their um, four surviving children did go to the funeral. Um, As time went by, though, George and Jenny began to believe less and less that their children had actually died in the fire and become complete ash. Uh, You could still make out fragments of the appliances, of different things in the house, of the tin tile, like of pieces of the tin roof like there are still things that you could identify in the ash of where the house once stood and so they just refused to believe that their children had just been completely turned to ash and -hmm. they think that it was a cover-up of the children being taken um the missing ladder that usually was on the side of the house was found at the bottom of an embankment and it was about 75 feet down and it was near to the house, but somebody had clearly tried to get rid of this ladder. Which seems very intentional. Yes. Like, they knew what they were doing. Like, they knew what his moves were going to be. And, like, yes, very exactly. much, like, went after what they assumed was going to be his next steps. Yes. And George could never figure out why the trucks weren't working because he just used them a couple hours before the fire. Like, that evening, he had used them, and so he could never, he assumed they were tampered with, but they never were able to figure out what was going on with that. Then there was the noise that Jenny had heard on the roof. 
And they were convinced that the fire had started on the roof, even though investigators didn't believe that was where it had started. They thought that it was the faulty fuse box. And so they didn't believe that. So could whatever she had heard on the roof have been whatever started the fire? Or could it have been the person sneaking into the house to get some of the kids? Yeah. And then, you know, they agreed that it was faulty wiring and everything, but the Sodders watched their Christmas lights stay on for the majority of the fire. That's weird. If it was the power, like the faulty wiring and everything, wouldn't the power have gone out and the lights would have turned off? I mean, yes and no. And the only reason why I feel like that's kind of dependent on the house is because when I was growing up, my next door neighbor's house caught on fire and it was faulty wiring and it was, it started in their attic. So basically like she got up in the morning to take a shower and she flipped on her light and it popped, but Mm -hmm. her light pops, you know, sometimes if they're not pops, she didn't really think anything of it. So she like went about and like took her shower and she got out and she saw like a bunch of what she thought was steam. She's like, Oh, I just took a really hot shower and she they like went about their day and I guess her husband or something was like getting ready for work and like went to go outside and like all of her neighbors were running towards their house because they had huge like feet and feet of flames coming from the top of their house but everything in their house was still working they literally had no clue that their house yeah but that was in like the 2000s and this house was Way older. <laughs> Way older. Yeah. You know, electricity this... was still, like, pretty much in its infancy. <laughs> yeah. Because they this happened when I was in elementary school. And the houses were built in, like, the 90s. So yeah. still, like, 50 years after. Yeah. So I would just think back in that day. Like, if it was faulty wiring, the Christmas lights probably aren't going to still be working. So I also looked it up because of who I am. And I found um, a person who was a firefighter from 1982 to 2015. And granted, Mm -hmm. of course, these numbers are going to be different because it's in the 80s. But they said on average, a house would be fully engulfed with fire for only 20 to 30 minutes. However, there are always factors that affect fire spread inside and outside the house, type of construction, the furniture, whether it's newer or older, the furnishings, carpet, curtains, natural gas, all the different things. Uh, In the cold, they tend to burn slower Mm -hmm. than obviously, you know, mobile homes burn faster. So it kind of depends on where it's spreading, but it doesn't seem very likely that the entire house would be burning for seven straight hours. I mean, at some point, the floor is going to collapse. Yeah. Once the fire has spread enough that it's, you know, when George went back upstairs to see if he could get the kids out and the hallway was on fire, at that point, the structure is on fire and the structural integrity is gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if it... The house is going to collapse, like... The house is going to collapse. Yeah, because that's exactly what happened to my neighbor's house. Everything looked looked perfectly fine. And literally, they, like, grabbed their dogs and ran out. And by the time they ran out, then the roof collapsed in. Like, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't that long before that happened. So, yeah. in these so older houses, what, I mean, who knows? How eerie would it be to be standing there helplessly watching your house completely engulfed in flames? Your children, you believe, are trapped inside. But your Christmas lights are still on downstairs. I would never be able to get that image out of my head. Never. Like, how creepy is that? Like, you've got these cheery Christmas lights on the Christmas tree, but your house is completely engulfed in flames and you are, like, heart-wrenched because your children are inside. Like, that's just awful. So, Jenny... I can't even imagine. Jenny found a newspaper article that talked about a similar house fire that was attributed to faulty wiring and the bodies of the family of seven that were killed in that fire were still recognizable among the ash of their home. 
This led Jenny to believe that if her children had died inside the fire, that their remains would be there among the ashes. Yeah. So I feel like that's fair. <laughs> fair assumption. Yeah. Fair assumption. Um, many people came out after the fact, which always happens, and um, said that they had seen several suspicious things the night of the fire. Uh, one person said that they were driving by and saw someone throwing fireballs at the solder home. But, okay, you didn't try and stop them. You didn't try and warn the Sodders. You didn't try and, like, call the police. You didn't say anything until, like, way after the fact. Like, you saw someone throwing fire at a house, and you didn't do anything. Yeah, that's not, like, that's definitely something that would be a cause for concern. You know? That's, like, it's the not definition like someone's playing of see something, say something. <laughs> yeah. It's not like someone's just trying to, like, teepee their tree or, like, do something stupid like that. Like, literal fireballs. Yeah. And this feeds into the theory that they had that the fire had started on the roof. Because if they're throwing fireballs at the house, you know, maybe that's what Jenny heard when she was woken up. Um, A few months after after the fire, uh, two-year-old Sylvie found a small, dark green, hard rubber ball-like object in the brush near where the house had stood. Um, this was once the snow had melted. She found this. And George said that it looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other incendiary device. Um, and so this also fed into their belief that, like, somebody had set the house on fire, that it was arson, not just, like, faulty wiring. Yep. Um, another person came forward and said that while they were watching the fire from the road, they'd seen the five missing solder children being driven away in a car. Again, you didn't say anything. You didn't do anything. Like, that didn't seem weird to you. You didn't say anything, like, right after it was happening and you knew the kids were missing. I just, I don't. <laughs> it's so, it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. That, that bystander effect. <laughs> yeah. It, dry, so, it drives me nuts. Uh-huh. So then there was another person, a waitress at a restaurant between Fayetteville and Charleston, said that she served the children breakfast the following day and noted that there was a car in the parking lot with license plates from Florida, but it was a rest stop, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that there were several license plates with out-of-state tags. But what do I know? <laughs> I, I mean, wasn't especially at Christmas, Christmas time, people are traveling. It would yeah. make sense. And so um, the Sodders didn't want to give up hope. And they even reached out to the FBI in 1947 and wrote a letter to the then director, J. Edgar Hoover, asking for the FBI's help. Hoover responded that he'd be happy to get involved, but he needed permission from the local authorities and, of course, the Fayetteville Police and Fire both refused. And, surprised. <laughs> right? And so the FBI could not get involved. Uh, with so many unanswered questions and police and fire department refusing to help them, the Sodders decided to hire a private investigator. And so they hired C.C. Tensley from the nearby, nearby town of Golly Bridge. Um The private investigator discovered that the insurance salesman who had threatened George and his family only months before the fire was on the coroner's jury that deemed that the fire was an accident. And now I'm setting off fireworks for my big red flag because what? (laughs) Someone who threatened George and his family was involved in making the decision that decided that it was an accident? How did that just suspicious. Oh my god. Yeah. Um what the hell? <laughs> That's all I I'm have sorry, to say. What like <laughs> what the hell? Like record so, record scratch. Right. Like, and so <laughs> then the PI also discovered that there were rumors around town that the fire chief had found bones and a heart in the rubble. But instead of telling the Sodders and showing them these remains, he secretly buried them. But why? I don't know. But apparently he had confessed this to a minister who later confirmed it to George after they had discovered this rumor. And Morris agreed to show the remains to George and Jenny. 
and they had a local funeral director examine the remains, and it was discovered that the bones were far too old to have belonged to any of the Sauter children, and that the heart wasn't a heart at all. It was a beef liver, and it had never been exposed to fire. So Chief Morris admitted that the bones and liver were a plant because he wanted the Sauters to believe that their children had burned in the fire and that they would give up. Well, if that was the case, then why didn't he tell them about it right when he when it happened? That's why did he not? That's what I said too, but I was like, I don't know, maybe I missed something. Who knows? But the whole thing is just absolutely insane. This whole thing sounds like a fever dream. Right? Oh my so god. So then in 1949, George convinced Oscar Hunter, a DC pathologist, to oversee a new search at the remains of the family home. And they discovered several different items that had belonged to the family, like they identified items. And uh-huh. some items that had even like belonged to the children and been in that bedroom with them. They also discovered bone fragments that were vertebrae, all from the same person, but they had never been exposed to fire and were from someone older than the missing Sauter children. So, So, like, they were planted. It was later confirmed that these bones had been taken from a local cemetery and placed in the rubble. There is no explanation for how or why this happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Every time I thought I understood where this case was going, there was something else that threw me and I was like, wait, what? (laughs) This whole thing doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So at this point, we're four years post um, fire. Fire. We've now gained national attention. But the State Department of West Virginia, the state decided that the case was hopeless and they closed it at the state level. Uh, Well, the only question, well, I have a lot of questions, but the one that I say the only one you have, I have a lot of questions, but because I spent days reading this and I have so many questions. (laughs) How can they keep that? I mean, I'm assuming because they said it was electrical fire, it wasn't an active crime scene. But how are you going to preserve an entire house fire for four years? Yeah, I have no idea about that. I was really confused because I thought that they had already, I'll mention it later down, but they like turned it into a garden in that area. Like that whole area, they turned it into a garden in memorial of the kids and so i thought that they had already done that and then it says that they like brought in these people to do another search so i was like well they obviously hadn't turned it into a garden if that's what they were doing yeah that's just it's really confusing because a i mean god knows how much of that was contaminated with stuff i.e like the random bones from a cemetery that wound up there then and you have the element looky loos and <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know a lot back then, too, and, like, even earlier on, like, people just had such a morbid curiosity about it. Like, they'd go rummaging around to look through this stuff. Oh, for sure. So, like, Lord knows who's gone through it. The family's gone through it. There's a lot of that in my episode for next week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it happens. And then you've got the family that goes through it, the police, the fire department, not Mm -hmm. to mention all the ailments. I mean, you've got rain, snow, wind. I mean... How I mean, at can this point, this stuff... they had three more winters. Yeah. I mean, how can that stuff still yeah. even be? And I mean, and they didn't think that it was a crime scene. They didn't think it was anything that needed to have forensics. They thought it was just, you yeah. know. An accident. Uh, a, a, an accident. So collecting yeah. evidence didn't really happen. So, like. Yeah, I don't understand that part, but, you know, the state decided it was closed, and the FBI was like, okay, I think we can get involved now, because now they're, like, following the theory that the Sauters had that their children had been taken. So the FBI was like, well, we have jurisdiction if children have been taken across state lines. That's federal. So the FBI jumps in, and they start investigating. Unfortunately, though, after two years of investigating and following dead end after dead end, they decide to give up on the case as well because they got nowhere. 
But the Sodders refused to give up, and they were determined that they were going to find out what happened. And they had originally offered a $5,000 reward for information. They doubled that to $10,000. And in 1952, George and Jenny had a billboard placed at the site where the house had once stood, and another placed on Route 60 near Anstead, West Virginia. The billboard on Route 60 stayed up for nearly four decades, and these billboards brought in sightings of the children, but none of them ever led to finding the children. But nonetheless, Jenny and George kept on searching. 23 years after the fire in 1968, George and Jenny received an envelope with no postmark or return address. It contained a photo of a man, and on the back it said, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. The Sauters believed that this picture was exactly how Louis would have looked as a grown man and held on to the hope that at least Louis was still out there and alive. But authorities believed that it was just a cruel hoax that someone was playing on them. I will admit the picture does look like it could be him, but I kind of agree with the investigators that it probably was just somebody playing a cruel prank on them because people are horrible. Uh, yeah. George died the following year in 1969, still believing that his five missing children were out there somewhere. After George's death, Jenny and the remaining children kept publicizing the case and looking for the missing siblings. And long ago, George and Jenny had created a memorial garden where the burned house had been and rebuilt the house somewhere else on the property. Jenny tended to the garden and kept searching for her children until she died in 1989. After her death, the remaining Sauter children took down the billboard, but they continued searching with their own children. The youngest and last surviving Sauter child, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, died in 2021, joining the rest of her family in the afterlife. And the mystery of what happened on Christmas Eve 1945 still remains. Many believe that the five Sauter children had indeed died in the fire that night, that their remains were just never found, but others believe that somehow they made it out and they were alive somewhere else. So what do you think? Uh, If they did die in the fire, why would someone want to cover that up? If they did die in the fire, if they did die in the fire... How come there was literally nothing? And if they did die in the fire, why would they feel the need to throw other bones that weren't from them in there? Exactly. Like, I, exactly. like that just feels like a justification. There's a lot of things that just don't make sense. Like, I'm like, okay, it was an accident. They did die in the fire. But why are all these other things? Why did the chief bury those other bones and say that they belonged to them? Why did they plant the ones in the you know, the vertebrae that were found later. Why, you know, like, there's all these things that I'm like, why did all of this stuff happen? And I forgot to mention that it was determined that the phone line hadn't gone out in the fire like they thought. It had actually been cut. Okay, okay. So that was another thing. And the ladder being, the ladder being at the bottom of the embankment, the phone line being cut. Hearing something on the roof. You know, pretty much, they'd been threatened two different people about something having to do with the wiring you know there's just too much that doesn't add up for me there's just too much that doesn't add up for me but But i honestly know because well presumably me the youngest one passed away in 2021 which would make me assume that if the other ones were still alive they would already passed on by now yeah everyone else would be long gone so it's like because the next youngest was five at the time so you know they would have if they had somehow made it out and gone on living somewhere else, I mean, why wouldn't they try and find their parents? Yeah, that's what I mean, unless they were like trafficked. I mean, with human yeah, trafficking. But I feel like that like, was probably less common in the 40s. Yeah. And I, I think know. it was like three boys and two girls or something like that. Like it was. I don't that, know. That but it completely baffles me. me. And so, what do you guys think? Do you think that it was really just a tragic accident and they died in the fire? Or do you think it was all a cover-up? You can yeah, I'd really like to let know. us know. Yeah, I, I'd really like to know that, too. I'd love to see if anyone has any other theories. And you can send those theories to us at um, truly underscore creepy on Twitter, at truly creepy on Instagram, 
We also have the Facebook, which is the Facebook. See? Well, no, I mean, I guess that one kind of works. The Facebook. <laughs> Truly Creepy Podcast with Brittany and Sarah. We also have our email, which is trulycreepypodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on any of those and send us a message, and we can can hear what you have to say about the story because, my goodness, I have way more questions than answers. So if anyone has any more information or has any of their other theories, I love a good theory. I love hearing other opinions on these things, so please let us know. We also have our Patreon, which I'm sure that we can post some links and YouTube videos and what have you that have this information to go and watch. There's plenty of things we can post on there. You can only see it if you're a patron, though. So go over, sign up, become a patron. We've got two tiers. You'll get loads of more information. You get extra episodes. You get Twitter spaces that we've had in the past that you can listen to. There's a lot of good stuff on there. And I'm so confused. <laughs> well, Sarah's going to go stay up way too late contemplating what could possibly have happened. <laughs> Sorry about it. Keep me up. I mean, I technically need to so go to bed in like two hours. Twitter, so you guys can talk <laughs> about it together. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm Brittany's the one that pretty much does the Instagram. I'm the one that pretty much runs the Twitter. So, um, I mean, I'm at a loss for words. I have no idea what in the heck is going on. I really would love to hear from you guys and see what you have to think because that was wild. That was a good one. That was wild. I, I just, that, that's all I can say. Was, that was crazy. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> I came in here I was like oh I'm so tired she's like well you're not gonna be for long <laughs> alright well while, you were while right. Sarah's trying to be you know basically a detective <laughs> <laughs> pretty much you guys keep it truly creepy but not this creepy bye